0: you step up let's get going and let's see what the lord can do through this little church called cornerstone hope you have your bibles with you you know by now i hope if you come here regularly we are a bible preaching church Uh, you're not going to get story after story you're going to get god's story in the history of god's redemptive movement so let me encourage you get your bibles open let's open them up to luke chapter 7 Luke chapter 7, we are in a series called Summer in Galilee, and we're looking at the events that happened in the life of Jesus Christ in the northern part of Israel. And the one that we're going to see today took place in a little town called Nain. And I want to jump right into the text, Luke chapter 7, we're going to look right in the text at verse 11. And here's what it says. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Now that word, great crowd, in the Greek, a lot of commentary writers will estimate probably 1,000 to 2,000 people. So I'm going to really do a lot of, of helping, almost be immersive in this sermon, as if you're in that crowd, as if you are in that little town. So imagine one to two thousand people following Jesus to this little town called Nain. They had walked an entire day's journey 25 miles. That's what the Jewish people reckoned, a day's journey by foot. They walked all that way from Capernaum to this little town following Jesus. He's growing in popularity. There's going to come a phase in his ministry where People begin to abandon him. And then, of course, there's a phase where he sets his face to Jerusalem to be crucified. But right now, people are hearing about Jesus. They are leaving their villages. They're following him around Israel, particularly around Galilee. And now they're coming into this little town called Nain, which means, by the way, Pleasantness and beauty. And it's named that way because it's nestled on the slopes of a mountain. I mean, this is an absolutely idyllic, gorgeous little village. Well, they walked 25 miles. That's a whole day's journey. So it's likely early evening, and Jesus is approaching Nain. It says in verse 12, he drew near to the gate of the town. And when this crowd of one to 2,000 people following Jesus gets near this gate, they encounter another group that's ready to come out of the gate. It's a funeral pr- procession, verse 12. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out. He's the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Now, that's a bi- biographical sketch right there. We've already been introduced to her meaning her husband had died. She's a widow. Now her only son, you'll find out later, he is a young son. The only son that this woman has, he dies. Now I want you to climb into this. Remember, I told you it's going to be a bit immersive. It's really going to get immersive in a moment. I want you to try to feel this. I want you to think like that woman was thinking. You see, widowhood was treated with the utmost respect among the Jewish people. Did you know, by the way, that they would take a special offering every three years to support actually several categories of people, widows being one of them, because they were dependent partly on the affection of relatives. Especially they were dependent on their oldest son. You remember that there was more given by way of inheritance to the oldest son... The firstborn son, than the other children. Why? Because it was the birthright owner's responsibility, the older son's responsibility, to take care of his family, including his mother when his father dies. But now her only son, her remaining joy in life, her, her husband had died, now her joy, her son, He's being carried to his grave, and she is utterly alone. Now, funerals in ancient Israel actually are very similar to the way they are today, but they're very different than what we're used to. The Jewish people had developed 39 different regulations and forms of grieving. I'll give you a little bit of it. When they encountered extreme grief, they would tear their garments. That torn garment signified a torn and broken heart. But the tearing was to be done standing up. And the tear was to be directly over the heart if the mourner, the one grieving, was the father or the mother of the one who had died. Otherwise, if that's not the case, the tear was to be done near the heart, but not over the heart. And the tear had to be large enough to put your fist through, and then they would sew it up with large, very loose stitches for the first 30 days of their grief, so that it would be visible, but yet modest. Women, for modesty's sake, would rip their undergarments, and then they would turn them around and wear them backwards. And then they would tear the front of their gown so that no skin would be bared. There was an untorn undergarment beneath. Grieving men, if you were grieving, you were forbidden to work. You were forbidden to wear shoes for the first seven days of your grief. You were forbidden to be not even shaving for your 30 days. And if you're a man and you were mourning, you couldn't read from, or rather you could only read from the book of Job, book of Jeremiah, book of Lamentations. They were considered the suffering books. You weren't allowed to read from the law of the prophets. They're considered a joy, and joy was not to be part of your grief. You couldn't eat meat. You couldn't drink wine during the grieving period, those 30 days. You couldn't leave your town, you couldn't leave your village for those 30 days. And those in grief, if you, when you did eat, you weren't allowed to eat at your table. You rather sat on the floor or a low stool. And you ate a very common meal of a hard-boiled egg dipped in salt and ashes. And you ate off of a chair rather than a table. Everything was meant in the Jewish culture to help facilitate your grief extremely different than America here we're told to get back to work very quickly here grief is uncomfortable you discourage it after a while if you're still grieving in a couple weeks you must be stuck there must be something wrong not so with the jewish people they were given 39 regulations of how to grieve and then once that grieving period was over they were to wash their bodies wash their faces and re-enter life in the jewish culture still like this today the dead were buried within 24 hours it's not like that in america so when this young man died, you're in that village of, T- of Nain, three to five hundred people, very small village, you would have heard a long blast on a shofar, the horn, that would have been the alert that somebody in that town had died, death had come for somebody among their own. And that young man's body would have almost immediately been placed on the floor of this grieving widowed mother's home and begun for preparation. She would have cut his hair, she would have cut his nails, she would have washed his body. Anointed him with oil, dressed him in his finest clothes, and then began to, with the help of others, wrap him in a linen shroud. And those helping her, once he was wrapped, would leave and allow her to be alone with her son for a couple hours so she could weep. Sitting on the floor, she would pour out her heart and lament. And when the time drew near for the funeral procession, her son's body would be placed in an open wicker basket face up, hands folded on his chest... ...and that basket was placed on a pallet or a plank that had handles called a bier for pallbearers to carry. Now very interestingly, in Galilee, the northern part of Israel... ...the rabbis taught that women should lead the dead out of this world into the next one... ...so the mother would have been in front of this coffin... ...leading the funeral procession... ...and the, b- those bearing it... ...would have been walking right behind her... ...forbidden to wear shoes... ...all the way to the cemetery... ...outside the gates of the village. And behind the coffin... ...walked professional mourners... ...they still do this in Asian countries today... ...they had singers... ...they had musicians... ...and they were their jobs... ...they were actually paid for this... ...you had a law that you had to have so many... ...even if you were poor... And if you had more money, you could get more musicians. But there were professional mourners who stirred up your grief. They would play dirges on their instruments. And they would sing out and shout out, weep with them all, you who are bitter of heart. And behind those mourners would walk the gathered citizens of Nain, likely three to 500 people. And they are about to meet the God of compassionate action. And here's where we can find some powerful truths for us today. You ready? That was all setting the stage. All to help you climb inside of this funeral procession. To know what's going to go on. What did go on. You can feel it. But now we've got to get some truths out of this for us today. We're in America. This is modern day. What does this event in Luke 7 say to us? Well, I'm going to offer three things. I think it says a lot more. I ran out of time. I had to take them out. I'm going to give you three that I really believe it speaks to us number one the heart of God is filled with compassion the heart of God is filled with compassion now I want you to look with me if you would please at verse 13 and when the Lord saw her he had compassion on her now I'm afraid that we read this and by the way this is repeated all through the gospels that Jesus sees somebody suffering and his response is a heart of compassion. And I think we see it so often that it sort of floats through our minds and we don't stop and we don't really camp on it long enough to really reflect, well, Jesus is God in flesh. So if you want to know what God the Father is like, then Hebrews says you've got his exact likeness in Jesus. So the heart of Jesus is the heart of the Father and the heart of the Spirit. So we're talking about God, and the heart of God is filled with compassion. Now, by the way, this is absolutely revolutionary if you lived during this time, especially in Galilee. Galilee was flooded with Greco-Roman pagan ideals and philosophies. Not so Judea, not down south. They were holding tightly to to Hebrew religion and Hebrew thought. But not up north, there was a melting pot going on. And in the ancient world, the most noble ideal... Now, you're listening to this. This is amazing. I'll actually bring it into modern Hollywood for a moment. The most noble ideal, the perfect state of inner being... ...to the ancient world, to Greco-Roman philosophy... ...was what was called Stoicism. Now you're sitting there, some of you, I'm sure, going... ...I have no idea what Stoicism is. Let me help you by bringing it into Hollywood. Think Leonard Nimoy, think Spock, think Star Trek, think the Vulcans. You've got a very good picture of Stoicism that was their philosophy. You see, the Stoics believed... That one characteristic of God was apathy, the incapability of feeling. That, and I'm, going to re-say, I'm going to say that again because I didn't say that correctly. They didn't believe that God had the capability of feeling. So they had a very sound argument, it seems, because if you can make somebody sad or glad, then... For that moment, you influence that person. And for that moment, then, if you're influencing that person, that means you're greater than that person. You're more powerful than that person. So the Stoics argued that nobody could be greater than God. They're reasoning through this. Therefore, God must be incapable of feeling. He must not be able to be having your influence exerting on him. But Jesus, God in flesh, sees this grieving widow. And the text says he had compassion on her. Now what is compassion? Well, to the Jewish mind, it was a yearning deep in their bowels. When I say the word bowels, some of you are thinking bladder. That's not the way Jewish people thought of the word bowels they considered it the very deepest most inner part of a person's being i'll show you how that works you might say that a movie was gut-wrenching or seeing somebody suffer makes you sick to the stomach like getting kicked in the gut so when jesus sees this grieving weeping mother okay bring it back you ready when god in flesh sees this grieving widowed mother, a deep emotional response flares inside of him and it propels him to do something to relieve her suffering. By the way, you must know this whether you believe it or not. I'm trying to persuade you of a truth. And some of you, I'm afraid, don't really believe this truth here. I know you get it here. But it's got to get 18 inches south to your heart. When God sees your suffering, friend, there is a deep movement in his inner being for you. And it propels him to action. He's not up there as a stoic. God is not there untouched by your grief. He's not up there untouched by your suffering. You've got to get it down in your heart. When I suffer, my God suffers as well. And in verse 14, we get to see what that compassion motivates him to do. Then he came up and touched the buyer. That's the plank on which the coffin was setting. They had the handles for the pallbearers, and those pallbearers stood still. Now, this would have put a gasp through the 1 to 2000 with Jesus that are watching this and the 3 to 500 coming out of Nain because no priest would ever touch a coffin in fact a month before any Jewish festival they would send work crews out and they would repaint all of the headstones all of the cemeteries a blazing white Because their belief was if you touched anybody that was dead or anything that had been in contact with a dead person, it rendered you spiritually and ceremonially unclean and impure before God. And you would have to go to the temple and you would have to offer a sacrifice to be made clean again. There's no priest that's going to touch anybody dead. This is why the Good Samaritan, you've got the Levite and you've got the priest that crosses the other side side of the road they thought this was a dead body they're not touching it they're not going to get ceremonial unclean but not jesus you see compassion always costs us something and this is why there's not a lot of us that are that compassionate compassion will always cost you something It will cost you finances. It will cost you time. It will cost you your effort. Sometimes your reputation. But Jesus isn't going to let anything stand in the way of relieving this woman's suffering. So verse 14, he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. This is the heart of God. He is filled with compassion that demands his action that will always be determined to relieve suffering. But there's more to this, and I think this is one that we need to really understand and believe as well. God always sees the big picture, He always sees the big picture. He said to this grieving, widowed mother, three words that I think at first feel so hurtful. Do not weep. All right, I want you to imagine something. You're at a funeral, and you've got a father or a mother or a father and a mother who just lost their child, and they're crying, and you walk up to them when it's your turn to wish them condolences and let them know you're praying with them. And instead of saying, I'm praying for you, you say to them, stop crying. How would that feel? So can you feel a little bit of the brashness of these words? Do not weep. You know, there's a biblical Greek word for weep, which means to cry very silently, to To cry like you're saying goodbye to a really good friend. But that's not this word weep. This word weep means to sob and to wail out of pain and hopelessness. This mom who is leading her dead son to the cemetery according to rabbinical law is sobbing and wailing. And you can hear her over the musicians. And Jesus walks to her. And says to her, don't weep as one who has no hope. He's calling her to place her hope in him. Which seems heartless, it seems insensitive, but he knows what he's about to do. He's about to raise her son to life. He's putting a spark of eager hope and anticipation into this grieving woman. And how nearsighted we all tend to be. I mean, look at the look at the beginning of Luke seven. I want to show you something, and I don't know. I'm sure you've read this story before, maybe several times. But have you ever gone back to the beginning of Luke seven and seen there that Jesus had just come from Capernaum, and what had he done there? He had healed the servant of a Roman centurion. That's a Roman captain who's got 100 men 100 soldiers under his command and he heals this man's servant but then you get to verse 11 and i want you to see the first two words at least that which is which are in the english standard version my version soon afterward now have you ever noticed that remember what i told you that this young man had died within 24 hours because Jewish people always bury their dead within 24 hours. So before he arrives to Nain, within that 24 hours, this boy had died. And you might be wondering, then why did Jesus not get there sooner? Before the boy had died. I mean, soon afterward in verse 11 does imply a window of time. And friends, I would want to ask you, have you ever said to God, if only you had come sooner? Or why didn't you heal my loved one? Why did you let this happen to my child? How come I'm unemployed right now? When is that ever going to happen? When are you going to come through? When are you going to answer these prayers? I've said those things. And if you're saying those questions, if you're asking those questions to the Lord, He probably is going to whisper back to you, what he whispers back to me when he begins to massage Isaiah 55 back into my soul. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are, my, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And when pain and sorrow comes to our lives, I found that there are two truths that are anchors for my soul. And I want to offer those to you as well. And I want to offer them with a bit of a warning and a bit of a caveat. And I hope you can hear me. Some of you know this better than I do. Some of you haven't yet experienced this. You are going to suffer in this life. Listen, you are going to encounter trials and pain. It is unavoidable. This is a broken world and everything under the sun is broken and crying out for its God. You are going to suffer. And when you suffer, James says, consider it all joy. The Greek means get it in your mind before you suffer so that you can endure when you do. Don't wait until you suffer and then flee to the Lord. Don't wait for the waters, the Bible says, to go over your head and then call out for the Lord. You learn these lessons now so that when you inevitably suffer, they're anchored there. And I'm going to give you two anchors that I think can get you through any suffering. And here's the first. Nothing will come into your life, Christian, speaking to Christians, Nothing will come into your life but that which contains your ultimate and highest good. You're going to struggle to believe that. And I'm telling you it's true. And sometimes your heart will scream that this cannot be true in this circumstance. And that is especially when you need to cry out. Even if your faith is weak and faltering... Our Heavenly Father is always good, and He sits on a throne higher than every other throne. And this broken world is full of pain, it is full of sorrow, and there's going to be times when you cannot make sense out of what is happening in your life. But I'm going to remind you, above those dark storm clouds, the sun is still shining. You just cannot yet see its rays. Paul said in first, first Corinthians, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Do you know that ancient mirrors weren't made out of glass? They didn't have glass back then, not in biblical times. They were made out of highly polished obsidian or metal, which was usually bronze. And they could only give a dim reflection. You couldn't see details. You could basically see shapes and a little bit of, a, little bit of detail. And what Paul was saying is that one day we're going to see clearly. One day we're going to know clearly. But that day is not today. But we must trust our God even in the midst of it. And the other truth is actually a question. And I wonder if you've ever actually asked it of yourself. It's one that I have to boldly ask myself, and I don't always pass the question. Here's the question. What do I want more in this moment, my own welfare or God's glory? Now, I want you to brace yourself and ask that question and really be honest. What do I want more in this moment My welfare, things to go the way that I want them to go, where life conforms to my will, or God's glory to reign supreme? That's a terrifically difficult question when somebody you love dies, or when your marriage is falling apart. Or when your career seems to not be going in the direction you want. When things happen in your life that you cannot control, they happen outside of your control and they blindingly surprise you. These are moments when asking that question takes a great deal of boldness and honesty. And it's a struggle for most of us, I think, and we need to remember that all of us need to be the same as Jesus who wanted nothing more than his father's glory. And look at verse 7 and verse 16 in chapter 7. Fear seized them and they glorified God. This is the ultimate aim of why and I, listen, I, this is going to be hard to hear. You ready? Very difficult. But it's true nonetheless. The ultimate aim in Jesus healing that dead boy, bringing him back to life, was not mom. That was secondary. The ultimate aim was that in doing that, he's going to bring great glory to his father. This is what galvanized Jesus to action, this is what dominated his. Choices. John 17, 4, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So the question is this, what do I want more in this moment of this trial, my welfare, things to go my way, or God to gain the greatest glory? Is that your highest motive? That in all ways, even as I trust in him through this trial, that he will be seen through me that my response will be one of peace that my character be one that the spirit of god is weaving into it that I will trust him even through that trial, that I will show him off to all those around me at work, all those around me in my family, all those around me on my teams and in my schools. This is how you trust a God that cannot do but the highest good for his children. I mean, has anybody ever said to you, Christian, has, has anybody ever said, I don't know how you can have such peace in a time like this? Well, if they're saying that to you, you're bringing glory to the Father. And God shows himself in his mighty acts, and we show him in our trust and our obedience. And we have opportunities to declare our trust in our Father who loves us beyond measure. The Father sent Jesus at the exact time to encounter this funeral procession, in order to raise that young man from the dead, relieve the suffering of that mother, and more than anything, bring great fame to God. In verse 17, this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. By the way, have you ever noticed in verse 17? Actually, have you ever remembered that Judea is down south? It's 80 miles away, three days' journey. They didn't have telephones. They didn't have Google. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have WhatsApp. They didn't have texting. This event spread over all of Israel from the north to the south until the entire country knew what Jesus had done and brought great fame to the Father. But what they didn't see is that the resurrection of this man points to a much, much deeper truth. And here's point number three, my final one. Salvation is all of grace. And the dead man, verse 15, sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. How incredible that Jesus brought a dead person back to life in front of thousands of witnesses. Yet as incredible as this is, it speaks of a God who is after something even more incredible, something more wonderful. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to talk with an 81-year-old man at the gym that I donate my money to. (laughs) I happened to show up once. I met this man. I'll tell you how I met him. I was wearing a Dallas Cowboys shirt. True story. He's a Dallas Cowboys fan. You see what God can do through a cowboy person? I mean, it's amazing. I met this man. He is on his sixth round of cancer. He's already had bladder cancer and he's come back again. He's 81 years old. And he said to me that he's lived a long life. And if the doctor were to tell him he's only got six months to live, he says, you know what, Tim? I'm all right with that. I've had a long life. And he asked me when he found out that I'm a pastor, he asked me if a lot of people that I meet with who are dying struggle with death. And I said that in my experience, if they're older, their struggle is not with death, but oftentimes with regrets. And he responded, I don't have regrets. And I'm actually quoting him, I've done a lot of good things, and I've done some bad things in my life, but I've lived a good life. It really gave me a great opportunity. That's a window. If you're wanting to share the good news of Jesus Christ, you look for those windows, Colossians 4, that God is opening up. this was a window. It wasn't locked. I raised it up, I walked through it. I asked him, "Can I talk to you about that for just a moment?" He said, yes. I asked him if there were a set of scales, you know, like the old kind that you used to get in a pharmacy. Has a little disc platform on this side and one on this side. You see it on some of our currency. and, And God piled all your good things on this side and then all your bad things on this side. How would you really know peacefully which way that scale is going to tip? How do you know you've not done more sinful deeds in your life than good deeds? But my question wasn't yet to the gospel. I'm just trying to lead in there. I told them, the Bible says in Romans 3.12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And you might be arguing, well, wait a minute. I know friends and I I know unsaved people that do good things. They give lots of money to charities and and help people at, at food banks. They can do good things. But the point of Paul is that when you put God's perfect goodness next to even their goodness, it doesn't even come close. They're still in perfection in their good acts. And I'm explaining this to my friend who's 81 years old and has cancer And I'm telling him that Paul was just echoing Isaiah. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And my friend's listening, and I'm explaining this to him. And though I I began to ask him. I asked, have you ever realized that even the good things that you do don't really look that good when you compare it to the absolute perfection of God? And you know what? He paused. And he says, you're right. And then he allowed me to explain that salvation isn't about what we do for God. It's about what God has done for us. Sending his son to die in our place. But I want to leave my conversation with my friend and get back to you for a moment. And I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you to really listen to this because I don't know where any of you are with the Lord. Do you realize... And can you admit that you are helpless to save yourself? That you cannot earn your salvation through good deeds? Can you admit that? Do you understand that? And this is a really difficult question for an American to confess. Because we are fiercely pragmatic. We're fiercely independent. We like to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Yet put it boldly in Luke 7 language, here we go, have you ever realized, those of you who aren't Christians, that you are, spiritually speaking, that dead young man? You're in a coffin. You're walking around, but you're dead. You're dead to God, meaning your heart is not alive and sensitive to his love and to his will. And what did that young man do to come back to life? The answer is nothing. He didn't reach out a hand as his his coffin was going out the gates by Jesus and grab his wrist and go, Hey, can you bring me back to life? He didn't do a thing. He didn't clean up his act before Jesus would resurrect him. He didn't barter with Jesus. He didn't earn his resurrection. He was absolutely dead. And it's a beautifully clear picture of the good news of salvation. We are dead in our sins. We are unable to save ourselves. We are helpless. But God, being rich in mercy, Ephesians 2, because of his great love in which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. See, salvation is all of grace. And not one speck is due to us. It's not due to our effort. It's not due to our deserving it. In fact, we have done nothing to deserve it and everything not to deserve it. But I'm afraid some of you so inoculated with this message and having done your own good deeds don't quite understand the gravity of your sinful, spiritually dead state. So let me bring it by you a little bit more graphically. See, a lot of us are used to defining sin, and I've told you this before, I've taught you this before. Sin is doing something you should not have done. Maybe it's disobeying your parent. Maybe it's looking at another man or woman with lust in your heart and you're married. You know you shouldn't have done that. Somehow your body got away from you and you did. And that's sin. Or you flip that coin, you come at it a little bit differently, or it's not doing the things that I know I should have done. The Lord was putting it on my heart to pick that person up and give him a ride home from work because his car had died. The Lord's been telling me to give some money to somebody who lost their job. And you know and I've just not done it because I've got a vacation I want to take. So I haven't done it. And that's sin, right? Because there was something you should have done. You saw somebody in need and you said, I'm not going to relieve it. And the Bible does say that it's sin. But that's as deep as we go and that's where it goes wrong. Listen, if you go downstairs after the service... And you're thirsty and you go over and you go get a cup and you put it underneath that water faucet and out comes a sludgy gray material. And you get it in yourself. I'm going to go to Home Depot and I'm going to go get a new faucet and I'm going to put it on there. You are utterly not getting to the problem. The problem is not the faucet. Problem's a reservoir from where that water's coming from. And the reservoir of sin, where it's coming from, is our heart. It's a heart disease. And you, like me, have a heart that says many times to God, I don't want to do what you want me to do. And I'm going to commit cosmic treason. And I'm going to defy you. And I like that throne. In fact, I like how it feels to be on that throne. I like managing my world. I like controlling my world and all who come into my kingdom. And I'm going to rule them. And sometimes I'm going to use anger. Other times I'm going to use manipulation. I'm going to avoid people. But I'm going to bring control to my kingdom. So, God, move over or get off the throne. It's time for me to do a better job. That's where sin always comes from. That's the reservoir. And that's what makes a person spiritually dead because they're born with that reservoir in their souls. Do you understand the need for your resurrection? Do you understand the need for God? To make you alive by his great mercy. It is by grace that you have been saved because you are a treason to God, just like me. Salvation is all of grace. And what an amazing God we have. Are you learning to trust God in the midst of life's difficulties? Are you believing more and more that he does see the big picture, even when you don't? Is there anybody that you know who is suffering, and is there a movement in the deepest part of you called compassion that actually propels you into action? Well, now you're imitating Jesus. And when's the last time that you had the privilege of witnessing And telling the good news to a spiritually dead person and watched God bring them to life. I don't think there's a better feeling on the planet. Do you pray for that? Are you faithfully telling others of the good news of your salvation? Are you letting your testimony of what God has done for you be on constant display with everybody that God opens up an opportunity with? That's the power of this passage in Luke 7. That's the God of compassionate action. Amen? I'm going to pray for you. And as I pray for you, I'm going to show you how you can become a Christian. And that might be just what some of you need to hear. So listen to this prayer and let's pray together.